So uh, welcome to all the arriving retreat crew. Nice to see people gathering and it seems like most everybody's here. I haven't seen Rick, but I don't know if he made it yet or not, but almost everybody's here anyway. <coughs> and we're kind of in the home stretch period before the winter retreat starts in a, in a few days kind of tidying up loose ends, getting people trained in job duties uh, for the winter retreat, enjoying a period of uh, a lot of rain. <laughs> just, I think I was just looking at the rain gauge. You know, over the past five days or so, we've had about nine inches, which is great. More to come in the forecast. So the forest is turning into its winter mode, water running in the streams and moss on the trees brightening up, coolness in the air, freshness. Starting to get our minds around a uh, theme for the teachings, the readings that we do traditionally on an almost daily basis uh, throughout the three-month winter retreat. And we've decided this year to uh, do kind of a revisit of a theme that we did more than 10 years ago. I'm not quite sure how long ago it was. Uh, but uh, on the topic around the theme of the, the fourth Satipatthana, uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, as it's commonly called, or more like the establishings of mindfulness, the four frames of reference, um, as Ajahn Jeff has referred to it. Uh, but specifically focusing on some of the topics and themes uh, in the fourth Satipatthana. So a lot of... Um, teachings, the, the five basic categories, the five hindrances, the five khandhas, the six sense bases, the seven factors of enlightenment and the four noble truths. Wide variety of um, subject material to cover very comprehensive uh, dhamma reflections. Uh, mental qualities as it's sometimes translated. Ones to be aware of, ones to develop, ones to uh, work on relinquishing, uh, and topics to help uh, develop insight uh, and following a path to the end of suffering. So quite a bit to start getting our uh, minds and hearts around uh, as we go. And we'll start with some introductory teachings uh, before jumping right into that uh, fourth frame of reference. So I'm looking forward to it, starting to get my mind around uh, how to do some of the uh, initial introductory reflections, what to focus on. But uh, keeping in mind, I mean, uh, this particular subject area, uh, We'll probably delve into a fair number of uh, suttas and commentarial uh, 
modern-day commentarial uh, teachings from some of our um, senior members in our uh, commun wider community. And um, just to emphasize that um, even with uh, a number of these teachings um, being fairly sutta-based or uh, maybe uh, explored a lot in scholarly, uh, more scholarly traditions, that our tradition is one of practical application. Um, I think of the word opanaiko from our uh, reflections, morning reflections in the chanting, to be brought inwards. Um, so we use the teachings and the ones that we'll be exploring this next three months uh, as a basis for practice, uh, not as a basis for developing inner information or uh, developing a lot of uh, intellectual knowledge or establishing opinions around or views or taking stances or having any kind of debates. Uh, uh, that all keeps things on a very surface level. And in some ways, Ajahn Chah and our tradition really emphasizes, de-emphasizes scholastic uh, pursuits, emphasizing, you know, really applying the teachings and bringing them in uh, and uh, changing, developing uh, our hearts, uh, which can only be done through direct experience, direct practice, um, living the life, uh, living the life and, and uh, establishing our attitudes rather than uh, being the best at uh, being able to recite suttas or, uh, you know, talk about them on, on that conceptual level. So Ajahn Chah, in many ways actually, sometimes very strongly discouraged that uh, I think as Westerners, we need to uh, pay a bit more attention to it because we don't, we haven't grown up in the Buddhist culture and haven't been exposed to things uh, in our training uh, as much. So we need to uh, use the teachings uh, in a, we need to study the teachings uh, in a judicious way and bring them in, uh, but not get lost in, yeah, just not get lost in the whole intellectual, conceptual, abstract side of things. So hopefully that's what we'll do and, and that we'll take the opportunity to talk about some of these and then use them as a basis for uh, reflection. It's also a time um, when uh, some of the monastic community members uh, occasionally take up some kinds of special practices, sometimes some of the more Dutanga kind of practices or uh, what we would call ascetic practices. Um, and uh, some, some do and some don't. Um, time to kind of explore uh, 
our minds and, and what we would like to uh, say improve some of our uh, habits and let go of some of our other habits. Uh, so there can be some experiment, judicious experimentation, not getting too far off uh, the track of moderation. But um, so yeah, kind of time of uh, easing up on an, all of our duties so that we can kind of examine our hearts uh, more clearly, uh, see um, where we would like to uh, direct our, our practice, do some experimentation. Kind of reminded a little bit uh, on the teachings from uh, the Buddha uh, that he termed uh, the middle way or the middle path. Uh, it's probably useful to reflect on that a, a bit at this point. In the um, time of the Buddha, there were a lot of different beliefs, spiritual beliefs, spiritual practitioners, uh, a lot of different philosophical systems. Um, it was kind of a, a rich time uh, of spiritual uh, experimentation. And so many different um, beliefs and practices uh, that we hear about and are referenced actually in the suttas because the, the Buddha would have encounters with these various wandering ascetics and practitioners of uh, different beliefs uh, and have encounters with them. And uh, there were a whole range uh, of beliefs from the, um, you know, from one side being kind of the, the side of sensual indulgence because there was uh, some beliefs, uh, some uh, spiritual practitioners believed essentially that uh, there was no cause and effect, no results of uh, actions, um, that, uh, you know, no rebirth, um, kind of, uh, you know, sort of a, a kind of a nothing mattered <laughs> kind of a, um, philosophical view, uh, which would result in, well, why not just get the most enjoyment out of life that you can, uh, and then it's, uh, then it's over, no worries. That's sort of a hedonistic kind of uh, culture. All the way to other extremes um, of you know, beliefs in determinism, that everything uh, runs according to uh, a karmic pattern that is completely uh, predestined, uh, and the various practices that came up as a result of that are sometimes also non-action because it's all not under our control in any way whatsoever. Uh, that um, sometimes uh, there were, a, and then there was also quite a, a large group of varying uh, ascetic wanderers uh, based, who would base uh, a lot of their practices on a law of karma, kama in Pali, uh, that uh, was prevalent of the day, but not necessarily what the Buddha taught, um, but a, a sense of uh, that there are, um, the actions, past actions do produce uh, effects that we feel results, there are the results of, of karma. 
um, that we experience from, from the past, past lives, present and in, in, and in the present life. But um, kind of almost a, a, a belief that, um, uh, you know, we were destined to, to have to experience all the results of, of past karma. Uh, and uh, some pretty um, wild and woolly ways of uh, trying to address that uh, experience of, of, of past karma would come up, different kind of strange practices, at least strange in our minds, uh, that people uh, would undertake, oftentimes very austere. Um, some of the reports of like you know, practices of people just walking on their toes and, or walking on their heels or uh, nearly starving themselves to death um, uh, through fasting uh, to the point of uh, emaciation, which the Buddha himself uh, practiced uh, in his experimentation. Uh, inflicting pain in several ways. Self-mortification, I guess, is, is the way that the Buddha referred to it. So there were these practices of uh, both sensual indulgence and, and self-mortification that the Buddha pointed to as, as uh, either of two extremes. One of the more um, colorful, colorful ones that uh, is in, in the, uh, reported in the Majjhima Nikaya is a kind of an interesting story of the Buddha being visited by two naked ascetics uh, who approached him to ask him some questions. And uh, one of them, his name was Puna, and he was a, uh, what they called a uh, ox duty ascetic, meaning that he uh, kind of took on the persona of being an ox. Uh, as the commentaries describe it, he, uh, he uh, would crawl around on his, uh, uh, legs and arms uh, like an animal, like an ox, and um, he strapped a pair of horns to his head and attached a, a tail to his backside and ate grass, grazed in the fields with the other ox. And um, he came with a, a, another a friend of his, Sania, who was a dog duty ascetic who essentially took up all the uh, behaviors and practices of of, of how a dog would act and behave, and that these were, you know, their beliefs that uh, would lead them to, to liberation, and so they came up to the Buddha, and as uh, as the story goes, uh, the the ox duty ascetic uh, Puna came down and uh, crawling to the Buddha and kind of sat down, uh, lied down, lay down uh, beside the Buddha, and then. Sania, the dog duty ascetic, came up and did the same and kind of like circled around him and sat down and curled up like a dog at the Buddha's feet. <laughs> I can only imagine what the, the Buddha was thinking at that time. Uh, what an image. But, um, and then uh, Sania, the, the dog duty ascetic, asked the Buddha, he says, Venerable uh, Sir, can you tell me um, what the results of uh, the practice of my friend here, the uh, uh, Puna, uh, the dog, uh, the uh, ox duty ascetic, will be, will be. What will be his rebirth, his destination? 
you know, and um, you know, the results of this practice. And the Buddha basically says, don't ask me. <laughs> and so uh, Sanya again says, well, you know, please tell me, you know, what the results were. And the Buddha says again, uh, don't ask that question, Sanya. Um, and the third time, of course, uh, he asks, and the Buddha says, well, you've asked me three times, so I'll uh, have to give you an answer. And he said, if uh, Puna, the ox duty ascetic, performs all of his duties uh, as an ox, uh, in the way that he describes and, and, and uh, succeeds at them, then he will be reborn in the company of oxen. As a, he will be reborn as an ox. Uh, but if he does it also, and I'm not sure if this is in the sutra or just in the commentaries, but if he actually does it, I think it's in, it is in the sutta, he, he, if he does it with the belief that this will purify uh, his karma, uh, and uh, cause him to be reborn uh, in a higher realm, um, then that's wrong view. And the comma of acting on a wrong view like that is actually rebirth in the hell realms, not just, or possibly in the animal realms, but more likely in the hell realms, uh, based on uh, not only acting like that, but acting on the wrong view. And after the Buddha said this, the um, Puna, the, the Oxford ascetic, uh, cried out and burst into tears. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Buddha says, see, you know, I, I told you, you know, I didn't really want to answer this question. But then uh, Puna says, well, I'm not crying because I'm so upset at myself, but just, or, or you know, I'm not, you know, worried about what you said, but just that I've wasted so much time pursuing this uh, path, if that's what the result is going to be. And then he asks the Buddha, well, what's the consequence of uh, Sanya, uh, the dog duty ascetic, uh, performing his duties? And will, you know, what will his rebirth be? And you go through the, the sequence again of the Buddha saying, don't ask. Three times he asks, and the Buddha says, okay. And then he more or less says the same thing. If he performs all of his duties as a dog, then he will be reborn in the company of dogs at the best. And if it's done with the wrong view of that this will actually purify my karma, uh, then the result is even worse. So chastened by uh, the Buddha's replies, um, uh, they both um, say, okay, I want to uh, change my ways, change my practices. Uh, and um, Puna, the Oxford ascetic, says that uh, from now on he is considering himself a devoted disciple of, uh, lay disciple of the Buddha uh, till the day he dies. And Sanya, even more inspired, uh, says, request the going forth from the Buddha uh, to become a bhikkhu in the dispensation. And the Buddha grants him that um, wish uh, and ordains him. And as the stock phrase goes, in no long time, Sanya uh, became an arahant.
don't know what happened to uh, Puna. So just you can see the wide variety of uh, practices and things that people did based on uh, the belief. And, and these, many of these practices, not all of them, but many of them come from that fundamental belief that um, we have to experience uh, the results of all of our past kama. Uh, and these various practices were devised as ways to kind of accelerate that process. Um, so that was a common understanding at the time. But the Buddha really refuted that, um, that belief in the way that karma worked. Uh, and pointed towards a different understanding of kama, which is kind of interesting because you know m mostly today people you know follow uh, how the Buddha taught it, but there are still some uh, traditions uh, that that do teach that one has to experience the results uh, of all of one's past karma uh, in order to purify. Uh, uh, the mind and purify the heart in a way that leads to liberation. That everything that we did in the past that had some uh, effect um, must kind of exhaust itself out in some way or another uh, before liberation uh, is uh, attained or realized. So I kind of am bringing this up just because it's, it's not an unheard of uh, view uh, these days and uh, can have a, um, a significant effect on people's practice if that's one that's picked up uh, and uh, held to. But if you really explore the teachings, uh, you'll find just numerous examples of uh, that kind of don't support that view that lead in uh, a different direction uh, of the understanding of kama. Uh, and, uh, you know, many stories of uh, arahants uh, through the suttas experiencing, still experiencing the effects of kama, like Angulimala, um, who became liberated after leading a life as a serial killer. Uh, still experienced the kama of his actions even after he attained arahantship. Um, Moggallana, uh, chief disciple of the Buddha, experiencing a very violent death based on past kama from past lives, uh, even though he was an arahant and chief disciple of the Buddha. And even the Buddha himself, uh, after his enlightenment, uh, experiencing the effect of uh, some past comma in the, in the form of various aches and pains and illnesses. So those examples are quite clear and prominent in the suttas and also just the uh, idea that uh, is presented that we've lived innumerable, innumerable past lives, uh, uh, infinite past lives creating comma, uh, and that really it, you know, for all of the, it's impossible, it's essentially impossible for all of the results to come to fruition. Um, if there was an infinite number of past lives creating karma, then there would have to be an infinite number of, of future lives uh, to experience the results of it. So it just doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense uh, the way that most of our, our teachers uh, see it. 
So just to kind of put that out there, um, that uh, the teachings that the Buddha gave on Kama uh, were a lot more hopeful um, in that uh, Ajahn Jeff has a really nice way of describing uh, the workings of Kama in a succinct way, that there's both a uh, uh, linear uh, way of viewing Kama and also a synchronic, the linear and synchronic aspects of, of Kama. So that the linear being past actions uh, will have an effect in the present and in the future. Uh, and uh, any actions that we now um, engage in, uh, intentional actions that we engage in in the present will have effects in the, in, in the present and in the future. So the, the linear aspect covers past to present to future. Uh, and the synchronic says basically also that we have the ability to uh, affect our experience uh, from past kama uh, by uh, being present uh, and attentive uh, as to how we hold it right here in the present moment. And that affects our present experience uh, of kama, uh, both kama that's being made right here and right now and from the past. So there's both this linear experience of the actions of kama, or the, the results of kama, and also the synchronic. And this gives us the ability to affect our experience. We don't always have the control over what comes to us from past kama, but we do have the uh, control of how to how to hold it here in the present moment and how to transform uh, our experience. Essentially, the teachings um, on liberation then are not one of needing to experience uh, all the results of past karma, but of uh, liberation is realized through purifying the underlying defilements uh, in the heart. So that rather than having to experience the results of all past action, uh, we look deeper into the causes of creating rebirth-producing kama, uh, or kama that leads us into suffering. Um, the, un the anasaya, the underlying tendencies, the, the kilesa, the defilements of the heart. Uh, the practice that the Buddha teaches is how to uh, purify the mind, purify the heart, so that the whole karmic process uh, unravels. And even though there's still the results coming from past uh, karma, that future, that karma is, uh, the, com the kind of karma that is made that will result in uh, continuing existence in samsara, um, is eliminated. And so it's a matter of purifying the, uh, the heart of these, of these defilements rather than experiencing the results of past karma. And this is what we have the ability to do and the whole training is around that purification of the mind, purification of the heart. So that we can take up certain practices and training um, like some people might do uh, during, the, uh, during the winter retreat um, that could be considered a bit more on the aesthetic side. Um, but we pick them up not to, um, you know, 
purify past actions or to kind of speed up the process of, of uh, uh, experiencing the results of kama, but as a way of uh, counteracting the defilements, uh, particularly the stronger ones that we might have, um, that lead us into repetitively uh, causing ourselves suffering uh, through old habits, old ways of being, old reactions, um, and uh, ways of kind of uh, being a bit more restrained or uh, certain practices to help counteract um, strong habits that aren't very fruitful. So oftentimes people, you know, many of our uh, strong habits center around things like food, uh, attachment to food, one of our few sensual pleasures. So sometimes people pick up certain practices um, of uh, watching their minds when uh, certain uh, things, foods that uh, are particularly pleasing and uh, uh, gratifying uh, come up of, of reducing intake or eliminating intake, intake and, and seeing how that goes. Uh, restraint around uh, the sensual aspects of, of food and uh, seeing, seeing what the effects are or uh, maybe sleep. Um, if uh, one finds oneself enjoying the annihilation of sleep uh, a little bit too much and taking advantage of what's going to be a, quite an open schedule uh, for the retreat and just kind of snoozing all afternoon or taking long periods of rest, a couple of hours, uh, enjoying the deliciousness of, of uh, not having to experience the world than one might pick up. Uh, some of the more uh, practice, some of the practices that are intended towards uh, inducing uh, wakefulness uh, by counteracting that tendency to, to just uh, nap out staying up later and getting up earlier. Uh, we'll have, uh, not during the group practice sessions, but during the um, inter uh, sessions in between when there's no schedule, um, have the opportunity to uh, voluntarily or, or uh, optionally uh, choose to do some of the all-night vigils on the one prize. So experimenting with that, uh, if one wishes. And maybe things around conversation and speech, we generally tend to uh, encourage uh, moderation in speech, but uh, just being aware of when the tendency is to, to distract oneself or find some pleasure in uh, long conversations that maybe don't need to be so, so long or involved, uh, using speech skillfully. Uh, yeah, in Thailand, uh, or Ajahn Chai even especially, you know, there, there's the, the admonition to eat little, sleep little, and talk little. You hear that kind of refrain a lot. Uh, and so these are sometimes some of the practices that people will uh, take up uh, if their particular inclination uh, is to indulge in uh, either one or several of those uh, practices of eating, sleeping, talking. But to also keep in mind a balance um, that uh, you know we don't want to become so uptight uh, around all of these things that we make our 
lives miserable for ourselves and for others uh, by uh, a strict adherence uh, to the point of um, making ourselves difficult to be around uh, and possibly causing ourselves uh, excessive uh, discomfort or harm that uh, maybe is a bit too uh, vigorous. So learning how to, to weigh what it is that we want to take up as a practice and make sure that we're not going to either extremes of just being lazy and taking it easy and using the retreat to kind of drift uh, or uh, being overzealous uh, to the point of uh, creating a lot of tension. Because the goal we're looking for in a retreat like this is to really in, enjoy the practice, enjoy the opportunity, and to enjoy the results of, of what this practice can be, particularly in the long term, of uh, an easeful uh, well-being, but, but it's based on simplicity and relinquishment, uh, letting go of the things that uh, prevent us from realizing that kind of um, ease of mind, ease of heart, gentle well-being uh, that delights in um, simplicity, uh, delights in peace, calm, uh, and openness. So we have to keep in mind what it is, the, the mind state that we're looking for, and, and weigh, our, uh, weigh our practices uh, against those um, benchmarks. Uh, one of the Buddha's teachings comes to mind. Uh, it's called the, the Four Bases of Success. Um, success in, essentially, as we uh, are, are taught in our tradition, applying that particular teaching to uh, general success in any kind of practice, spiritual practice. And there's what they call the Four Bases are uh, Chanda, Virya, Chitta, Vimangsa, which Chanda meaning um, inspiration or um, desire, healthy desire, uh, zeal, uh, to pick up something or to, to work on some sort of uh, underlying habit that we have that, that causes us pain, uh, that causes us suffering, um, and to start to examine it and see if there's ways that we can let that unravel. So we develop this, this interest, and oftentimes it's based on really squarely looking at the suffering that it causes us. And having an open inquiry, wanting to have an open inquiry into, okay, this is something that uh, is a strong tendency of mine, and it, and it causes me difficulty, it causes me suffering. So what, you know, what to do, how to, how to work with that? And that, gives, that kind of interest gives rise to various energy uh, to uh, pursue uh, a, an ending to that kind of, of habitual tendency. And with that energy uh, and interest, um, we apply, apply the mind to a, a certain approach that uh, we think might help. 
Um, that's the chitta aspect, applying the mind. And we go and we take up the practice uh, or take up the reflection or um, try and you know, work with a particular hindrance or defilement uh, based on our understanding and from the teachings, discussion with our spiritual friends. Uh, and then we, we really do our best to um, work with that uh, and bring it into being. And then lastly, the vimanksa, the evaluation, very important part of it. What is the effect of what it is that I'm doing? Is it working? Um, and not just in a short term, because many of these uh, things that we'll take up for reflection and investigation uh, and in the meditation practice uh, lead to at least some temporary discomfort because we're going against the old habits. and the mind rebels uh, and you know a lot of these things that bring up unpleasant feeling we have habits around to essentially get rid of the un unpleasant feeling whether it's through distraction or indulgence or avoidance um, the goal is that we're working towards is to not have to experience that so when we confront them um, or test them or put up a barrier against uh, the usual ways of getting some temporary gratification, um, we're, we're going to experience uh, some rebound effects. It's just the way that it works. It's like being in the pressure cooker. You know, the heat is turned up and the pressure is turned up and, and um, you know, the defilements don't go down easily. Um, so that there's a, a bit of reverberation in the heart. Uh, so that's to be expected. But in the long run, um, how does it feel? Uh, is there, uh, at least uh, through confronting and developing different kinds of mind states and different habits and opening ourselves up to the experience, uh, practicing with patience, developing some, some skillful qualities to help hold all of this, does that at least uh, give a sense of uh, ease. Is there, is there a result in, after uh, some time um, where there's an ease of mind and a relinquishment, a letting go uh, of, of these old habits and tendencies? Oftentimes through just simplification, through uh, not struggling so much. Uh, there can be a release. So if, if, if we can see that, and if we re um, realize uh, that uh, there is a, uh, a release from, from some of these habits, then that's our vimanksa, that's our evaluation. We, we are realizing, okay, there is something to this. It actually works, even if it's just a small hint uh, of, of release or freedom, then that's uh, reinforcement that what we're doing is the right thing. So the benchmarks of peace, space, patience, uh, a little bit of relaxation, ease of mind, uh, understanding. Um, these are some uh, benchmarks that show, okay, this is, the right, this is the right path. If the result is just continuing um, to be uh, more dukkha, more uh, tension, more um, uptightness, more um, 
uh, you know, if, if, if the results are uh, agitating and not peaceful uh, in the long run, uh, if we find uh, people avoiding us, uh, uh, if we're becoming harder to, to be around, uh, we're becoming more of a burden um, and being difficult to, to be with, um, argumentative or you know any of these kinds of negative qualities, then perhaps you know we're, we've picked up the wrong practice. So very important this evaluation process. How's it affecting? How's it affecting my heart? How's it affecting my relations uh, in the community? What's its impact? So that helps determine what we pick up and what we don't pick up. So realizing that we have the uh, opportunity coming up to, to uh, move in, uh, bring, bring the training inwards, use the teachings in a judicious way uh, that um, uh, really informs uh, our practice. Uh, experimenting if we, if we would like to, um, but keeping in mind uh, overall the goal of ease and well-being. Um, nobody wants to, to live for three months just uh, pursuing a path that feels like it's just leading to suffering, and there'll be there'll be times when uh, there'll be struggles, and and we might need to um, loosen up a little bit, not too tight, not too loose, uh, and uh, if we need to engage in some conversation to get some perspective, or to let off a little steam, or just to enjoy a little bit of kindness uh, and support from, from friends, even in a kind of a casual way, that's fine. Um, if it starts to move into um, just kind of idle chatter and distraction, then uh, maybe that's time to kind of close that particular conversation. But we want it to be, we want ourselves to enjoy this time. Um, we want it to be useful and we need to put effort into to it and not just drift and, and be lazy. Um, but we also want to develop uh, practices and habits that lead to that well-being uh, that the Buddha talks about. Um, that's part of the, the practice. And it's, it's not something that you have to struggle with and, and um, experience a lot of you know, excruciating pain and difficulty and hardship, and, and then you uh, gain liberation. But it's meant to be as the Buddha talks about, beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. So that little by little, we experience the benefits uh, of the practice through a gradual loosening, opening, relaxing, relinquishing, uh, and just opening the heart, opening the mind, opening the senses um, to what we have as a potential. Using the supports, and we've got a good group of people here to help us um, do the duties that we normally do so we can relax around that. Uh, we've got a beautiful forest, um, nature, running water, um, that all, if we open our senses a bit and look around us and let it permeate uh, our minds and our bodies, that just being in the forest alone 
uh, is, is stilling and peaceful, simple, uh, uncomplicated. So using the environment, using the supports, uh, using the structure when we have it. Um, we'll have just three separate weeks of group practice and then the rest will be open. So using the structure, uh, supporting each other when there is structure, uh, letting people uh, enjoy the support of practicing together, and then relaxing and opening uh, and enjoying the, the space in between those times, uh, allowing the heart to just simplify, settle, and open. You know, we've got it all here. Um, and uh, uh, my wish is that everybody uh, takes good advantage of that uh, and that uh, over the next few days we'll be um, finishing up the organizing and the training uh, and then also really much wanting to welcome the retreat crew to, to join in in uh, the practice uh, uh, when they're not involved with duties. Uh, and to uh, wish everyone, hopefully, a very um, sublime and useful and peaceful uh, retreat coming up. So I'll leave that for tonight's reflection. <laughs>